Please take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel 24. This is it. Our final sermon in 2 Samuel. One final lesson. We conclude our series. Above the important individual lessons which we have learned throughout this series, we based our series on an overarching trend that we find in David's life. Expressed through a chart which I gave you that was attached to the outline that you had at the beginning of the series I provided for you. And uh, on this chart, we observed a general tenor of David's life. Just how important his act of adultery and murder were to his life. We learned from this in a general way how important our choices are. Choices and consequences. How significant a single choice can be, particularly as it sets in motion a string of the choices which follow, like dominoes, falling one after another. We noticed that David's life hinged upon chapter 11. That before that point, he was triumphant in everything, but after that point, there was nothing but failure, nothing but judgment. That hinge being his adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah the Hittite. Yet we also regarded the deep importance of the Davidic covenant, given in chapter 7. Within this Davidic covenant, we saw not only David recognizing that this covenant ensured his lineage, uh, as we considered last week in chapter 23, but also promising that through him would come the Messiah, the man who would rule in complete righteousness and justice. Through Messiah, David's kingly house would become a house that pleased God to the fullest, so that all history would recognize David and David's house to be a house that pleased the Lord. Last week we considered David's final words, his final written words. Words which taught us of the nature of rulers who please the Lord. A ruler that pleases the Lord is a ruler who is just, ruling in the fear of the Lord. And also the hope that David had that his kingdom would be redeemed through Messiah. And we pick up today with a unique final chapter in the account of First and Second Samuel. It's worth noting that the final days of David's reign are not recorded in 2 Samuel 24. They are recorded in 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles, with his final act being made uh, that he would make Solomon his heir, the heir to his throne. But 2 Samuel 24 records in many ways, kind of, we might say, the final record of David's kingly actions, his kingly duties being performed and indeed, the record is not a positive one. It's, it's quite negative, in fact. It, it's kind of the capstone that David lived in triumph, and though the Lord was gracious to him, Absalom did not find, destroy him in the end, and he got his kingdom back, and he got his rule back, and the people accepted him once again. Yet, this final act as king that we have recorded was one of rebellion, one of faithlessness, and ended up destroying a full 70,000 of the people of Israel. We will from it, however, find encouragement in our own lives, for we know from Romans chapter 15, verse 4, oops, excuse me, that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. What God gave us in the Old Testament was there for our learning, that we could learn to Hope in the Lord through patience and comfort. 
So let's dig in. Verse 1. The scriptures tell us, And again the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. Well, we waste no time getting into the conflict of this chapter, do we? The scenario before us is introduced by saying that the anger of the Lord was kindled. And notice who against. It's not actually explicitly David this time, but against Israel as a nation, and then David as their king. So David was a part of this, it would seem to some degree, as God will use him uh, as a part of this judgment. However, his, his wrath is kindled against all of Israel. And really, that's what this final chapter records, is a conflict between God and Israel, the judgment of Israel by God. There's no record regarding why it is that God is so upset with the nation. Some speculate that 2 Samuel uh, 21 um, where God was upset at the nation for Saul's sin of destroying the Gibeonites, if we recall. There was a three-year famine that struck the land. Some speculate that there was a similar incident, or perhaps it was that God was angry at Israel for, not, for uh, following after Absalom instead of maintaining their loyalty to the, uh, to the anointed king of Israel. And so some think that maybe it was Absalom uh, directing their support towards him. It's by no means certain, though. But it's quite clear that there's something amiss. There's something between the nation and the Lord, and the Lord is now angry. And what is very interesting about this method of judgment was that he used David to, he moved David against the people, effectively. He moved David to take an act of disobedience that would affect the people. And this is interesting and a somewhat troubling thought that God, the text tells us, that God moved David against the people. God is moving David to do something sinful so that God may then in turn judge the nation. Well, this doesn't sound like our God, does it? We must rest on this thought for a moment and seek to understand it as best we can in light of God's revealed word. We understand that not everything that God does is made known to us. Indeed, uh, God has many mysteries. But in this case, we get some insight. Whenever we come to a passage of Scripture that poses some difficulty or contradiction, we must approach it with sound interpretive methods. And the first step is to narrow our options by rejecting any conclusion which cannot be true. So, interpretations which cannot be true, that must be rejected. First, we must believe without a doubt that God's word is not in error here. That God's word is not in error when it says that God moved David, that, that by some way this is accurate. In some way, by some perspective, this is true. So we reject the, the notion outright that there's error in the text because God's word is inherently, infallibly inspired and has been perpetually preserved for us and is accurately translated in our King James Bibles. Second, we know that God does not cause people to sin, does he? Nor does God tempt men with evil. How do we know? James 1.13 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. When we compare Scripture with Scripture, Scripture is always the best commentator for itself. We understand that God cannot tempt men with evil. God will not tempt men with evil. He is not the author of evil. He does not compel men unto evil. But what we do find in scriptures is that God, in acts of judgment as direct consequences of sinful choices, does allow certain evil to take place. 
we find that when we reject the revealed word of God, God will allow our hearts to be blinded and we will be deceived by lies. That as we follow the path of darkness instead of of light, even if we're a believer, when we get into that place of darkness, we can be easily deceived into sinning against God or against others. This was God's message to the nation of Israel and Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, God speaking to Isaiah, He says, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and they hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. Here God says that the preaching of the prophet, as Isaiah preaches to the nation, it will actually close their hearts. Because they have rejected the Word of God, as they hear the Word of God more and more, instead of it softening their hearts because they've already rejected the Word of God, the judgment of God is that their hearts will be hardened. They will, get, they will go into deeper blindness. Jesus would quote this verse in Matthew 13, verse 14, in Mark 4, verse 12, in Luke 8, verse 10, in John 12, verse 40. All four of the Gospels, Jesus quotes this verse and he's replying or referencing in in all four of those Gospels, Israel, particularly the scribes and the Pharisees. Paul would also quote this verse in Acts 28, verse 26 and Romans chapter 11, verse 8, both speaking of God's judgment of blindness upon the hearts of Israel for rejection of the word of God. And so blindness has happened to Israel, not because God demanded that they be blind, but because they rejected the revealed word of God, that is Christ. And when they rejected the, real word, the revealed word of God, they entered into a place of spiritual blindness as a natural judgment for their rejection. Now, God can still use it. In fact, Romans chapter 11, verse 8 tells us that blindness in part has happened to Israel so that the fullness of the Gentiles can come in. Not verse 8, excuse me, but, but in Romans 11. It says blindness has happened. They've been deceived. They are in darkness now and God is allowing them to stay there until the fullness of the Gentile world come in and then he will bring them back to himself, wake them up through judgment, chastening, the tribulation. And so this is one way that God moves to judge sin. We also find that when we live in unrepentant or consistent sin, God will allow Satan more freedom to work in our lives, to allure us and to influence us. He will remove the barriers of protection that he might otherwise put up that Satan can then use to influence and allure us. And this is what we find here. God is going to give Satan more freedom to influence David for this sin that Israel has committed that no doubt David is a part of. And because God is sovereign, he knows that Satan's tactics will work, and so the people will fall into judgment through this act. Say, Pastor, how do you know that God is going to remove his hand, that Satan has a hand in this? Well, we know at least in part because the biblical record tells us Satan does this. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober. Be vigilant, for your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Satan's on the offensive. But more specifically, we get more insight from 1 Chronicles 21. In 1 Chronicles 21, we have the parallel passage to this one here in 2 Samuel 24. And in verse 1, we read this. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. So in 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, The Bible says God moved David 
to provoke Israel or to number the people, excuse me. Uh, God moved David against them. And then here in 1 Chronicles 21, we see that Satan stood up and provoked David. So David, as a part of this nation who was under God's judgment, the barriers of protection were removed and Satan was allowed to provoke David into sin by God's allowance. So God was moving to allow Satan to provoke David. Therefore, God moved David through Satan against the people. This gives us insight, not just into how Satan works, but into the fact that Satan is constrained. We can go to Job and see this as well, that Job, that Satan cannot do anything that God does not allow him to do, that God does not give him permission to do. And so whereas God may have not been giving Satan permission to influence David or to allure David or to provoke David, now that David and the nation of Israel is into some sort of sin, God removes his hand of protection and says, Satan, you may now provoke David. And he uses Satan for his good to do what he desired to do in judgment. But Satan was the author of this provocation of tempting David to sin against God by numbering the people. And let us always remember that through this, we understand God is always in control. So, as we consider God moving David through Satan to go and number Israel and Judah, one more thing we can dismiss as impossible before we move on. God's word is not an error. God does not make the people sin, then judge them for it. Indeed, Satan does that. And David is not involved in this judgment innocently. I've mentioned that already. God's word is not an error. God did not force David or the people to sin and then judge them for it. And we know that David is not an innocent party here. For while, as we walk through the text, we will find that the judgment was far worse for the people than it was for David... We who know the character of God know full well that God judges righteous judgments. And the things which David suffers here must be a part of some level of responsibility on his behalf, on his part. And we find that the thing which Satan provokes David to do is to number the people. In the following verses, we'll understand why this is a problem, that David numbers the people. It doesn't sound like that big of a deal. We'll find out why. And we'll find out through a rather unlikely source, in fact. Continuing in verses 2 and 3. For the king said to Joab, the captain of the host, which was with him, Go now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, and number ye the people, that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said unto the king, Now the Lord thy God add unto the people, how many soever they be, an hundredfold, and that the eyes of the Lord, might, uh, the, Lord the king may see it. But why doth my lord the king delight in this thing? David tells his captain, Joab, he's still the captain of the host, right? He was supposed to not be, but then uh, Joab killed and murdered his rival again in cold blood. 
So Joab is still the captain of the host. He's still the general. And David tells him to number the people from Dan, which would have been the northernmost point in Israel, down to Beersheba, the southernmost end. Uh, The essence of the census would be for David to understand the strength of his military for purposes of battle. He wants to know what kind of strength he's got. He wants to know what kind of power he has. And Joab actually responds here in faith. He actually says something good. Asking the king why it matters at all. How many people there were. He echoes the words of Leviticus chapter 26 verse 8. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 50. Where God promises that if the people are walking right with him. Leviticus um, chapter 26 says that five would chase 100 and 100 would chase 10,000. And the Deuteronomy passage says that one would chase 1,000 and two would put 10,000 to flight. Indeed, the principle that both of these promises elicit is that if you will trust the Lord and do right with Him, numbers just plain don't matter. Numbers just don't matter. One man can put a thousand to flight. Two men can put ten thousand to flight. Numbers don't matter because the Lord is in it. The principle Joab then is resting on he's urging David to remember and consider is that to number the people is wasted effort. It reflects more a lack of faith in God than it does sound strategy and wisdom. And Joab's wisdom in this case does not prevail. So we read in verses 4 through 9, Notwithstanding, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the host. And Joab and the captains of the host went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And they passed over Jordan and pitched in Aror on the side, on the right side of the city that lieth in the midst of the river of Gad and Tower Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of um, Hodshi, and they came to Danjan and about to Zidon. And they came to the stronghold of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and of the Canaanites And they went out to the south of Judah, even to Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of the nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave up the sum of the number of the people unto the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men that drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. It took nine months and twenty days to perform David's request of numbering all the people after which Joab tells the king that the men of fighting age, and this might give you an indication of how, how big Israel had grown to this point, the men of fighting age in Israel were numbered at 800,000, 500,000 in Judah. The question becomes, is Judah being separated from Israel here, so that there's 800 in Israel and 500,000 in Judah, or is Judah a subset? Uh, there's debate about this. It seems, however, as we consider the way that they looked at things, these are separate numbers. So that would mean 1.3 million man army, which is just huge. Huge army. And verse 10 is where things begin to get interesting. David made a choice, provoked by Satan, allowed by the will of God, 
faithlessly number the people. He was resisted by Joab and the captains. He ignored them. He demanded that they do it. They spent nine months and 20 days doing it. They give him the numbers. And once those numbers were in, we read this in verse 10. And David's heart smote him. After that, he had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done. And now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. David immediately feels the conviction of his wrong, and he goes unto the Lord, asking the Lord to pardon his sin. Now we've mentioned just in passing what the offense is here. David is numbering the people, and in doing so, he is opposing faith. But let's just make sure we're all on the same page. God's word is true. In it are God's promises, which we can either believe or not. We can either obey or not. And as we walk through life, God gives us specific leading and direction through His Holy Spirit on specific things. For those under the sound of my voice who have made major decisions, perhaps you can relate to David here. Perhaps you can relate to a situation where you went out and you did something, or you, you purchased something, or you went somewhere and you made a choice, without first praying, and after you did so, you immediately fell under conviction, knowing that you should not have done it. Often we call this, in in purchasing something, buyer's remorse, right? Buyer's remorse. You bought it because you gave in to uh, this this desire for something, and then you immediately regretted it. Uh, It's even worse when you realize that by doing that, you stepped outside of the path of God's will or of God's provision, and instead followed your own way. Or, or maybe a situation where God is leading you to respond to an offense or an injury in a certain way. Someone has done you wrong and you know what God wants you to do and you know what the Bible says. And instead of turning the other cheek, instead of allowing yourself to be defrauded, as we talked about this morning, you lash out in anger. You, you, uh, you, uh, you're vengeful. You uh, are... Unkind, jealous, biting sarcasm or bitterness, and immediately your conscience burdens you with the reality that you did wrong. This is what David experienced here. He knew he should not have done this. He knew that, he, that, that by faith he should just trust that God could take care of the people. He ignored that. He ignored the leading of the Spirit. He ignored the teaching of God's Word. He did wrong, and as soon as he was finished, his heart was convicted. His heart was smitten with the reality that he had done wrong. Because David wanted a plan B, just in case God's way didn't come through for him. And that plan B was a lack of faith. The most unfortunate thing about that, about a plan B, is that when you make a plan B, the very mindset of having a plan B, the fact that you've got a, uh, you've got a, a, a backup plan when God's way doesn't work, when God fails... The very fact that you have a plan B means you're not trusting God. So inevitably, if you have a plan B, your plan B becomes your plan A. Does that make sense? Do you understand what I'm saying there? If you have a plan B, if God is plan A, right? God is plan A. I trust God. God will provide. I trust God. God will bless. I trust God. God will lead. And plan B is, well, I'm going to have this tucked away. I'm going to have this there just in case. Well, your just in case is just in case God fails you. And if, if you're approaching God with no faith, well, then he's not going to come through because you're not trusting him in faith, which means your plan B will inevitably and 
inescapably become your plan A. It will have to become the plan that takes place because God's not going to be found in those that don't have faith in him. We'll talk about that more in our application. So David repents here, asking God to take away his iniquity, and God responds by sending a prophet to the king, a prophet named Gad. We read of him in verses 11 and 12. For when David was up in the morning, the word of the Lord came unto him, unto the prophet Gad, excuse me, David's seer, saying, Go and say unto David, Thus saith the Lord, I offer three things. Choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. Sometimes choices, even ones we regret, even ones that we repent of, have divine consequences. Sometimes simply repenting of a sin does not mean that we don't still have to suffer the consequences of the choice we made. And Gad is going to remind us of this fact. We have not seen Gad in some time. In fact, we have not seen Gad since the days where David fled from Saul in the wilderness in 1 Samuel 22, verse 5. There, Gad told David not to remain in the land of Moab, but to go back into the land of Israel to be among God's people. David did so, which means that most likely this seer, this prophet, David's prophet, David's seer, had been ministering with him for probably going on 40 years at this point. Gad had been with David for a long time. And God speaks through Gad to David and gives him three choices. He says, I'm going to give you three choices, David, and I'm going to do one of them to you. The choice is up to you. Three consequences for his sin. Verse 13. So Gad came to David and told him and said unto him, Shall seven years of famine come unto thee in thy land? Or wilt thou flee three months before thine enemies while they pursue thee? Or that there be three days pestilence in thy land? Now advise... And see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. So, three options. Seven years of famine. Three months of fleeing from his enemies. Or three days of pestilence, of a plague in Israel. And David must choose. Now, it's important to remember that God is using David's sin to judge the people. And so we understand that God knew in his sovereignty, because God is above time, which one of these David would choose. And God knew that the circumstances would be such that David would choose one that that could be more devastating, in fact, to the people as a judgment against Israel. We regularly state that we consider the balance between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man uh, as something that, that... uh, is beyond our understanding, but is within our, our grasp. God is not forcing David to choose any particular option here, but God does because God is outside of time, because God is not bound by time. God does in his sovereignty understand the decision that David would make based upon circumstances, and so guided the circumstances in David's life to bring about the decision that he wanted. God knows the end from the beginning. He knows in any given scenario which choice David will make. And so he presents the circumstances which will guide David into the choice which will fulfill God's purposes while also fulfilling his justice and his mercy and his grace. It's always after statements such as this that I would love to ask. So are there any questions? Uh, Do you have any questions on that? Of course, we're not going to because this is more of a preaching setting than a teaching setting. But if you do have any questions about God's sovereignty and man's free will, uh, by all means, let's talk about that sometime. David's answer is in verse 14. He says unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let us, that would be the nation, fall now into the hand of the Lord, 
for his mercies are great, and let me not fall into the hand of man. Uh, We only read of David explicitly rejecting one option, and that is having to flee from his enemies once again. He is sick of fleeing from his enemies. He fled from Saul. He fled from Absalom. He doesn't want to flee anymore. And while we would understand uh, this verse only to explicitly rule out that one, he actually rules out both. David's line of reasoning, he says, let us fall into the hand of the Lord. He doesn't want to fall into the hand of, of famine, into the hand of, uh, of the, the um, natural consequences of a nation lacking food. And so there's really only one option on the table that David feels comfortable with, and that's the one where he is placing the mercy, uh, the, the entire nation of Israel on the mercy of God. That God will send a plague, and God is going to decide just how bad this plague is. The famine... Uh, that's going to run its course. There's not going to be any food. Things are going to happen. The uh, fleeing from his enemies, uh, he'll have an enemy at his tail. But with the plague, it's all in God's hands. And David wants it in God's hands for this reason. Because David knows just how merciful God is. And and David, uh, you might say that he's kind of a a betting man here. He he, He is going to bet on God's mercy every time. And this is the scenario wherein God will have, well, where there's the greatest chance that God will be merciful. So David chooses that one. Three days of plague. Verse 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning even to the time appointed. And there died of the people from Dan even to Beersheba 70,000 men. Three days. 70,000 men died. What a horrible, horrible plague. We cannot even imagine this magnitude of death. There's nothing within our frame of reference in this country at this time in history to imagine, to relate to 70,000 people dying over the course of three days. Verse 16. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented him of the evil and said unto the angel that destroyed the people, it is enough, stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing place of Arauna, the Jebusite. So the angel, an angel that is the one that is bringing about this destruction, perhaps the same angel um, who passed through Egypt on the night where the firstborn child of every family was killed, we don't know. But the angel is destroying. And when he gets to Jerusalem, the Bible says God repents, God relents, God is ready to stop. He was by the threshing place of a man named Aruna, the Jebusite. And we'll talk more about him in just a moment. The Jebusites, however, were the Canaanitish people that lived in the land, that lived in Jerusalem before David took it over. David overthrew Jerusalem from the Jebusites, took it over from them. Obviously, Arona was a man who had been willing to assimilate, who had been willing to accept David's overthrow and was willing to um, be a part of this new nation of Israel. We'll talk more about Arona in a little bit. We've spoken as well in the past about what it means that God repents. But let's take a few moments to talk about this. Uh, We asked the question, can God repent? And we must answer in the affirmative that indeed he can repent, for we see him repent. Here he does. 
he does in the days of Nineveh as well, that he repents of the evil that he thought to do unto the nation of Nineveh when they repented. God repents. God changes his mind. God brings about a different action than what he had intended otherwise to do. Now the problem with that is we have a verse in the Bible, Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, that says this, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. He hath said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Here we find it said that God does not repent. So what do we do with this? How do we deal with God repenting when the Bible says God does not repent? Well, just like before, when we're talking about Bible interpretation, we start with what we know to be the case. We know that the Bible is not in contradiction. It's not an error. The Bible does not contradict itself. We know that God knows all, that nothing takes him by surprise, that he is faithful and true. Why should God have to change his mind when, when he knows everything? When he knows what's going to happen? And if we know these things, well then how is it that God repents? Well, first we understand the definition of repentance to be a change of mind, which brings about a natural change of disposition or of action. So by saying God repents, it does not mean that he regrets his decision, that he feels like he should not have made the decision, that he, he is sorry for what he did, or that he was in error. It simply means that he is turning from his present course or action, his present way of thinking, to pursue another. In the case of Numbers 23, where we see this verse that says that God does not repent, God is prophesying through Balaam, in order to state that Israel is God's chosen people. And so as Balaam is incessantly trying to curse God's people, God says, look, I'm not going to curse God's people because I've already promised to bless them. And I'm not repenting of that. I'm not a man that I should repent, that I should tell Israel I'm going to bless them and then pull out the rug from under them. I'm not like that. That is not me as God. God says, I will not repent of this promise. When God speaks, God makes good. But what we key in on is the contrast between man and God when it comes to lies and repentance. Man will change his mind because he makes mistakes. He has his own motives or seeks to advance himself at the expense of others. But God is not petty like a man. He is not one to be bought and sold. He is not going to curse the nation that he said he will bless simply because this this uh, prophet desires God to do so. He's not petty like that. God does not make mistakes. He sees the whole picture. He sees it in advance what is, is happening. He does not have ulterior motives. He does not advance himself at the expense of others. God's direction can change in relation to his will and man's disposition toward him. So that God does indeed repent, but what God is stating here is not that he arbitrarily changes his mind, or that he makes mistakes, or that he goes back on promises, or that he is unfaithful to fulfill his decrees. What he is stating is that when a man, and this is what we see with God as far as repentance is concerned, when God is acting out his will, his divine will, his divine judgments, and man changes the status quo, when God, when man is heading in this direction and God's judgment is in front of him, if man will change his disposition toward God, he will avert judgment. And so God will no longer judge them because they have turned from the path of judgment. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Bible says, if we will judge ourselves, we should not be judged. 
That if we judge ourselves and if we judge our own sin, if we get it right with God, then God will not have to chasten us for our sin. We judge ourselves lest we be judged. The same idea is in effect. That if we don't divert from our path, well, God's not diverting from His. But when we realign with God's will, God can repent of the evil that He thought to do while still being 100% consistent with His will and desire. So we're really wading through a bunch of muddy issues today. There's no concept here which we have not covered more in detail in times past. And of course we'll do so at later dates. But again, if you're confused on this issue, by all means come see me. Or we can choose one of our forum times, Sunday school, Tuesday night, and talk about it. Why even get into it, Pastor? Well, here's the thing. We talked about it a little bit in Sunday school this morning. There are answers. And our children need to know that. But also... We should not ever be afraid of our Bibles. When we approach the Word of God with belief that God is big enough to inspire it and preserve it, we don't need to be afraid of seeming contradictions. We just need to know that when there seems to be a contradiction, the problem is not with the Bible, it's with our understanding of the Bible. And then it's our privilege to prayerfully work out these problems and concerns through the guidance of the Holy Spirit with the help of faithful men of years gone by, to bring us to a place where we can understand and reconcile these issues in our hearts. And we can. Because God's word is reasonable. We hasten on in the text. Verse 17. And David spake unto the Lord when he saw the angel that smote the people and said, Lo, I have sinned, I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, be against me. And against my father's house. David, it would seem, immediately regretted his choice of choosing the plague. But even more so when he sees the angel. So somehow he saw this angel. I don't quite know what that means. But he sees the angel destroying. He sees the angel stop at the threshing floor of Aruna. And when he sees the angel destroying the people, he's filled with regret. And he says, I'm the one that did wrong. I should be the one that's punished. Not the people. These are his sheep. He does not know that God is using this circumstance to purposefully judge the people. And indeed, God can often, and often does, use even our poor choices to bring about His purposes. So David begs God to strike himself rather than the people. However, God's purposes were already fulfilled. The three days had passed, 70,000 had died. Jerusalem was spared in God's mercy as God repented. And on the other end of this, we find Gad returned to David. Presumably this is on the last day, right toward the end. David is regretful. His people are dying. He wants to know what to do. He sees the angel of the Lord smiting the people. Presumably the angel hasn't necessarily made it to the threshing floor of Aruna yet. And we read this in verses 18 and 19. And Gad came that day to David and said unto him, Go up, rear an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And David, according to the saying of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. So Gad says to David, look, it's time for you to worship the Lord. Rear up an altar to the Lord and the threshing floor of Aruna. Whether it was after the angel had stopped at the threshing floor or, or whether this was before the angel had gotten there and that is why the angel stopped, one way or another, David is told to do this. In order to do this, though, he needs to own the land. It's a threshing place right now. It's a threshing floor. You can't erect an altar on that. So he needs to 
to, to be able to just to, to change the land. Uh, and in order to do that, he needs to own the land. And we read of this in verses 20 and 21. And Aruna looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. And Aruna went out and bowed himself before the king on his face upon the ground. And Aruna said, Wherefore is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor of thee, to build an altar unto the Lord, that the plague may be stayed from the people. So he approaches Aruna. Aruna bows down unto him. He asks why he's there. David tells him, I need to buy this from you so I can erect an altar. Verses 22 to 25. And Aruna said unto David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seemeth good unto him. Behold, here be oxen for burnt sacrifices, and threshing instruments, and other instruments of the oxen. For wood and all these things did Aruna as a king, given unto the king. And Aruna said unto the king, The Lord thy God accept thee. And the king said unto Aruna, Nay, but I will surely, I'm sorry, excuse me, nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver, and David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord was entreated for the land and the plague was stayed from Israel. Aruna offers to give the land to David for free. And even to give him the oxen and the instruments necessary to offer up the offering. Now, it's verse 23 is quite interesting. In verse 23, the Bible said that Aruna, as a king, gave these things unto the king. Now, remember, Aruna was a Jebusite. From this, we understand that Aruna was most likely the king of Jerusalem when David overthrew it. Or perhaps he was the former king, the retired king, whatever the case may be. It's quite possible that he was the leader of the city or one of the previous leaders of the city. And he maintained this position of, of power. Uh, he had his place. And it's interesting enough that Aruna, this threshing floor, we find later on that this threshing floor upon which this altar was built, this land upon which Aruna lived was Mount Moriah, the mount upon which the, the temple of God would be built. The temple mount. That's where Aruna lived. That's where this threshing floor was. King David, however, would not accept these gifts. Even though it was a kingly gift given as a king, one king to another, he would not accept them. And I love what David says, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which costs me nothing. David says, I'm not going to cheapen my worship of the Lord. Worship matters and it costs something. We'll come back to this. So David buys the threshing floor for 50 shekels of silver. He builds an altar unto the Lord. The Lord accepts the offerings and the Lord is entreated the plague estate. And there is a stated link between David's actions here of erecting the altar and the end of the plague. It's consistent with what we know about God's repentance, that God repents as the status quo changes, as man aligns himself with God. David does the offering, God repents of his evil. Now we're going to apply this evening from several facets, uh, bringing in several truths that we found from the word of God this evening. And our first application is this. God judges rejection of his word with spiritual blindness. We need to understand this. 
God judges rejection of his word with spiritual blindness. We drew this point today out of our contemplation regarding God tempting man, that God does not tempt man with evil. But what God uh, will often do is judge man's rejection of his word by reducing his spiritual judgment and so he is more apt to fall into the natural consequences of sinful actions or into the condemnation of the devil. We went to Isaiah 6 to show that this is clear, that God judges those who reject his word with spiritual blindness. But what needs to be stated very pointedly in our application today is that this spiritual blindness does not just happen to unbelievers. It can happen to believers as well. When a believer rejects the revealed word of God, in some degree or another, that believer can also be brought into a place of spiritual judgment, uh, spiritual judgment, spiritual blindness, lack of spiritual discernment regarding spiritual things. Have you ever wondered how a person can call themselves a Christian but be doing the things they've done? Or believe what they believe? Have you ever wondered how people can call themselves believers but, but think abortion is okay? Or call themselves believers but think sodomy is okay? Could it not be that as they've rejected the word of God, they've been plunged into a spiritual darkness, a blindness? Maybe we would say, well, they're probably not believers. That's possible. But could it also be that they could be deeply deceived by the enemy because they have been plunged into a spiritual darkness as a result of the fact that they've been willing to play fast and loose with the truths of Scripture? Paul discusses this in a very helpful way in Romans 9-11, through 11, but I'm not going to go there this evening because it's a difficult passage and we just don't have time. I would, however, like to give you a couple of verses to consider. Psalm 119.105, the Bible says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Proverbs 6.23 says, For the commandment is a lamp and the law is light and reproofs of instruction are the way of life. If we take these verses at face value, we understand that the word of God through the Spirit of God, illuminates the world so that we can see the world for what it truly is. We call this our worldview, lenses through which we see the world around us. And on the testimony of God's Word, when the Bible is the lens through which we see everything, everything becomes clear. Whereas those who don't see the world through the lenses of the truth of the Gospel are at best in a fog, more likely in utter darkness. When the Bible fails to be the lens through which we look, we just don't perceive things properly. We are in darkness. And the, the interesting thing about that darkness is that we don't realize it. For those of you that wear glasses, have you ever been in one of those circumstances? Those of you that don't, you can't really relate to this. But have you ever been going through your day and then at some point in your day you've taken your glasses off and you've cleaned them and you put them back on and you realize that you've been seeing through a haze all day? And you thought, how did I, how did I even function with my glasses in that degree of messiness and now they're clear and you can see so much better. But you really didn't realize it when you were walking around with your glasses crazy dirty that they were crazy dirty. It had happened over time. It had happened slowly. Things just kind of collected. They built up. Next thing you know, your glasses are filthy and you're seeing through a haze. That can happen in our spiritual lives as well. That as we just slowly, bit by bit, allow other things other than the Word of God 
The Bible says to do this, we choose to do this instead. The Bible says don't do this, we choose to do it. Uh, There's a haze that will develop in your spiritual life. And you'll find that your bad choices will begin to make more sense to you. And you'll say, what's wrong with that choice? What's wrong with that choice? And one day, you'll either find yourself in a place, well, either way, you'll find yourself in a place you never expected to be. My wife and I will do this from time to time. We will go throughout our lives, throughout the things in our house, and we'll, we'll, we'll make a, invent, a spiritual inventory. We'll ask the Lord to search us and try us, and we'll find that things crept into our lives that we didn't even realize were there. A laziness or an apathy or a selfishness or whatever it might be. And we say, how did that get there? And we have to get it out. But we didn't even know it was there. Because at small little points along the way, we just accepted little bits of darkness to where, next thing you know, we're walking in a haze and we didn't even realize it. And I do believe that this is the reason why the Western world and specifically Christian culture finds itself where it is today. I believe God has judged this nation and more specifically this nation's Christians with a spiritual blindness on account of our rejection of the revealed Word of God. Why is it that Christians lack such discernment today? Why is it that actions and thoughts and philosophies which were once obviously wrong and which are biblically obviously wrong, many of the things that we would look at and say, that's obviously wrong. Why is it that they're up for debate? Could it be because believers have begun a trend of rejecting the revealed word of God and God is judging churches with spiritual blindness? Could it be that when Bible-believing, professing at least, Bible-believers decide to reinterpret God's clear teaching about women in the pulpit, about women pastors and women teachers in the church, teaching men, that when the, when the church decided that that was just a suggestion, just a guideline, and it wasn't God's truth, it wasn't God's commands, Could it be that when that happened and God's people began to pragmatically explain away the clear teachings of God's word, that God looked down upon his people who willingly and purposefully explained away his explicit commands for the sake of popularity or or in order to avoid strife or in order to meet with the goals of the feministic ideas of the day? Could it be that those people began to fall into a level of spiritual blindness and deception? Could it be that that those sorts of decisions have created this snowball today of not just women pastors, but of divorce being perfectly acceptable in the church, of, sodom- of sodomy being uh, a, a lifestyle choice that we need to get used to in the church? Could it be that Christians are confused Because they have created a habit of rejecting the revealed word of God and God is judging them with spiritual blindness, with a lack of discernment? Could that be why Christians have no concept of what it means to love not the world or to come out from among them and be ye separate? And they don't even know it. They're reading the Bible and they're saying, yes, I believe this book to be true, but they don't even realize that there are portions of this book that they have outright rejected. And they've explained it away. If the Word of God is the light that lights our path, if taking heed to the Word of God is the source whereby a young man cleanses his way, 
then we might assume that the reason why the path of believers is more reminiscent of the world than of Christ in this age is because the Word of God has been rejected. And where the Word of God is rejected, God's people are judged with spiritual blindness. Or unbelievers are judged with spiritual blindness. But they won't even know it. They'll be in darkness. So God judges rejection of His Word with spiritual blindness. Second, God judges disobedience of His Word with spiritual vulnerability. More perhaps directly relevant to David's case as we studied it today is spiritual vulnerability among those who walk in disobedience to the Word of God. I distinguish this from rejection of the Word of God in this way. Those who reject the Word of God, in my definition, are those who, knowing the Word of God, explain it away or actually disannul it. They say, nope, that's not true. Those who disobey the Word of God are those who are willing to acknowledge that the Bible is true, but that doesn't mean they're obeying it. When you disobey the Word of God, you make yourself spiritually vulnerable. In Ephesians 6, the Bible teaches us of the armor of God, that we are to have the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, loins girt about with truth, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, and the sword of the Spirit. How many pieces of that armor, which are designed specifically, Ephesians 6 says, to repel the attacks of the devil, how many pieces of that armor are lost when you knowingly, willfully walk in disobedience to God's Word? Most. Can you say you've truly picked up the shield of faith if you're walking in knowing disobedience to God's Word? Can you say that you are truly wearing the breastplate of righteousness if you're walking in disobedience to God's Word? Can you say that your loins are truly girt about with truth if you're walking in knowing disobedience to the Word of God? And so when believers who are walking contrary to the Word of God seek to repel the attacks of the devil, they're standing there with the helmet of salvation and nothing else. And that's a lot of area that can be damaged. That's a lot of, that's a lot of attack zones that are open to the devil. When you disobey, when you live in disobedience, you make yourself vulnerable. And if God has given us the armor, but we won't wear it, How can we blame anyone other than ourselves when Satan consumes and devours us? And if we blame God for our rejection of the Bible or for our blatant disobedience, well, then we've missed it. And here I share with you one of my favorite quotes from any philosopher. I'm not going to tell you the name of the philosopher. I've quoted this once before, I think, in in this church. I know you can find it easily with simply a Google search. I'm not trying to hide the name from you, necessarily, but... The reason why I'm not telling you his name is because I want that to be a reminder to you that I don't approve of the philosopher as a whole. He's one that is generally accepted in general Christian circles today. If you look him up, if you find him, if you read him, I would, I would caution you. But this is a really great quote. He nailed it with this one. He said this, The matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming, Swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any word in the New Testament and any words in the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. My God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get on in this world? Herein lies the real place of Christian scholarship. Christian scholarship is the church's prodigious invention to defend itself against the Bible. 
to ensure that we can continue to be good Christians without the Bible coming too close. Oh, priceless scholarship, what would we do without you? Dreadful it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, it is even dreadful to be alone with the New Testament. Hmm. I think he's right. I think the, this huge industry of Christian books and Christian scholarship and Christian study that has amassed itself today is really pointed toward a generalized concept, which is this. How can we explain away what's very simple? How can we find ways around that which we don't like? Now I'm painting with a broad brush here. There are many good Christian scholars, many wise men who have touched that field. But we also see a general trend today that God's people are using misinterpretation, reinterpretation of God's word to justify sin against God himself. And God will not just sit back and watch. Indeed, we become spiritually vulnerable. We become spiritually blind. Number three, don't plan B God's promises. Don't plan B God's promises. David's major problem here, other than displeasing the Lord and thus bringing on a situation where Satan was allowed to provoke him into sinning, was that he had a plan B. He numbered the people to know what his strength was to be ready in the day of battle. Gave him an insurance policy in case God didn't come through for him. In our Sunday morning service over the past couple weeks, we've spoken about the privilege of being spirit-minded and Christ-like. A spirit-minded person understands God's promises and feels no compulsion to hedge his bets against God's will or things in which God has control. He doesn't need a plan B because God will not fail him. And because God will not fail, there need be no plan B. Now here's the problem with this point. Where do we draw the line between making a plan B and simply being a wise steward? Let me illustrate. I'm a pastor in Buffalo, Minnesota, and I'm the father of four young children. As such, I am hesitant to travel downtown into downtown Minneapolis and to hand out tracts to people that are there. Lord knows they need it, but I don't want to die. I've got a young family. Things can go bad quite quickly. I have a responsibility to them. There are risks associated with it. My health, needles, dangers, crime. I feel like the needs of my family are greater than that and I am compelled not to make those risks. Well, is this me hedging my bets or is this me being prudent? Could be either. It's prudent if it's God's will. It's hedging my bets if God wants me down there and I'm not going. See, because there's little doubt that if God willed it, I could walk down there for years and not get a scratch. Because God's in control. So a refusal to go if God wants me there is a lack of faith. But if God doesn't want me there, perhaps because I have these responsibilities, then God lays it upon my heart to not take the risk to take care of my family instead. What about things such as buying insurance? If God is in control of my life, should I put my money, which could go towards other needs, towards hedging my bets against injury and illness? Is insurance prudence or is it a plan B, which will likely become a plan A when I get sick, right? Who with insurance starts by praying, 
and asking God to heal him rather than going to the doctor and taking care of it. Well, I don't have an answer for you on that one either. I'm not saying, believe me, I'm not preaching against insurance. Believe me. It's not what I'm preaching. What I'm preaching is if the Lord wills it, it's right. If the Lord doesn't will it, it's wrong. If the Lord doesn't will it, you're hedging your bets. If the Lord wills it, it's the way God will choose to provide for you. Missionaries go through these questions in a hundred ways, don't they? First, should I go to the mission field? Then should I stay and for how long? Then should I raise support and how much? Then should I get insurance to cover medical, to, to cover fleeing the country quickly? Each of these decisions comes down to a philosophy of who God is, what God can do, and then what God wants from us. If, if the missionary is approaching all of these things from a, ma- a worldly perspective of, well, I've got to have all my ducks in a row, I've got to have a hundred earthly, uh, er- earthly uh, material things in place because that's how the world works, he's hedging his bets. But if the missionary gets on his knees and says, God, how would you have me to go? And, and God says, go this way and do these things and get that insurance. Well, then that's what God wants. I'm not here to settle these questions for you, but I do want you to think about them. And, and I, I want you to think about them because, as I say, don't plan be God. That's between you and God. Are you plan being him? I can't, I can't tell you that. You can't tell me. You can't, this is one of those areas, the judge not stuff. I can't look at you because you've chosen to do something or not do something and say, ah, plan B, unless, now I can confront you and say, hey brother, hey sister in Christ, I'm concerned that you have a plan B. Is this a plan B? That's right. But for me to say, oh, they have no faith because they did this. I can't know that. I can't know that. Unless I've talked with you about it and you say, yeah, I have no faith then I can know that. Right? And let's just not make the same mistake David made. Point four. Worship costs something. David refused simply to take the threshing floor and oxen from Aruna, the Jebusite, and he refused on the grounds that he would not offer burnt offerings unto the Lord of that which cost him nothing. The statement reveals a philosophy of worship whereby David regarded worship as cheap if it came cheap. What he put into it, not just of heart, but of material sacrifice, is what he would get out of it. And he dared not cheapen his worship of God and come to him having not sacrificed anything in himself. Jesus taught this while he walked on the earth as well. The account is often called the widow's might. We will study it when we get to Luke 21, but let's read the Mark passage briefly. Mark 12, verses 41 to 44, the Bible says, And Jesus sat over against the treasury, and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury, and many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain widow, certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make one farthing. And he called unto him his disciples, and said unto them, Verily I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. Jesus praises the woman for the two mites that she threw in far more than he praises the rich men who gave far more of actual wealth to the treasury. And the reason why he praised her is because while those rich men and women gave of their abundance... That woman, that poor woman gave of her need. She gave what she could not afford. And in the eyes of God, that was worth more as for worship. 
because they didn't sacrifice anything, and she did. Christians have a real worship problem in this country, and our church is not exempt. Be it worship at home, that's taking time to pray and read the Bible, doing Bible time with our children, uh, going out and serving others in a tangible way, or be it worship at church, being inconvenienced because it starts early or you have to stay late, being inconvenienced to come again in the evening, which ironically I say to our evening crowd, being inconvenienced to take time to do the midweek, to being inconvenienced to invest in other things that are going on, being inconvenienced, and maybe this isn't so much applying to this church, but in many churches, being inconvenienced to get out of your pajamas or to brush your hair or to brush your teeth. We Christians have a worship problem, and that problem is that we are unwilling to worship if it costs us something. And the problem with this is this. Cheap worship is not just cheap to us, it's also cheap to God. Worship costs something. It's supposed to cost something. And if you want to show God you're serious about Him, if you want to truly reflect unto God His worth, His deep value, which is what worship is about, that worship should cost you something. It will cost you something. In fact, may I be so bold to state that you should go out of your way to make sure that your worship costs something. Yes, I will turn off the TV to spend time in the Bible. Yes, I will take that chunk of my day to give unto the Lord. Yes, I will go out of my way to serve the church, to serve others in the church. Yes, it's inconvenient. That means it costs me something. That means it's acceptable to the Lord. Because worship costs something. David said, I will not, I dare not take this of you and offer up to the Lord that which cost me nothing. I dare not be so presumptive. You know, if Aruna had said that to me, being the penny pincher I, I am, I'd have been like, yeah, this is great. Praise the Lord. God provided a way for me to worship Him without spending any money. But you know what? Cheap worship isn't just cheap to us. It's cheap to God. Final point. Then we close. The cycle of sin continues, but the mercy of God does as well. We find in this chapter the cycle of sin and repentance, which we all commit, which we need to understand and we need to embrace. Now, that doesn't mean we embrace sin. The Bible makes it clear through His Holy Spirit that you never, ever have to sin. You will sin, but through His Spirit, you never actually have to sin. God has made the provision for you to never sin again, though in your sin nature you will. But we need to understand that as a part of the reality of sin... God also has blessed us with the privilege of immediate and continual restoration of fellowship. And we read of this in 1 John. 1 John is the treatise on how to abide in Christ and to walk in fullness of joy. It's not an epistle that speaks on how to be saved or maintain your salvation or how, or how you can lose your salvation, as many people believe. It's about living in Christ and living the abundant Christian life. If 1 John has ever bothered you because it seems like on its pages John preaches sinless perfection is the qualification of salvation, I would encourage you to go back and read it as if he's speaking to a bunch of believers who do sin and see how that changes your perspective. And in 1 John 1, 1 we read this in verses 8 and 9. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
if we as believers believe that we don't sin, we're liars. We, we're, we're living in deception because we do sin. But if we will confess our sins, God is faithful and just to immediately restore us, to immediately forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to restore us to fellowship with Him. And this is what we see in this chapter with one added warning. An added warning that though we will be faithful to forgive, that does not mean we should sin. And if we were to see this as a process, it would look kind of like this. We sin. That sin brings about conviction. We don't lose our salvation. We bring, it brings about conviction. And that conviction should bring us to repentance. If we do not repent, you see that in parentheses, chastening. If we ignore God's conviction, God faithfully chastens us until we relent. We read about that in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 8. However, if we, like David, respond immediately to conviction and we repent immediately, then God doesn't need to chasten us because we've already repented. At that point, we've changed our mind about our sin. We've aligned ourselves with God. We've confessed our sin unto Him. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and He does so. He removes our sin as far as the, as the east is from the west, and we are immediately restored to fellowship with God. And then, once we're restored, we receive the consequences that that sin led into. Whether minor or severe, whether divine or just natural, there will be consequences. The situation makes us wiser, so that next time we get into the situation, we say, I don't want the consequences, I don't want the chastening, I've got an idea, I'm just not going to do the sin. And this is the process. This is the process which we will all live in. No doubt, each of us wishes that it wasn't necessary, but it is a great blessing, is it not? Because each time it draws us nearer to the Lord. It brings us peace and joy through the privilege of living in constant fellowship with God and then growing in grace and in wisdom sufficient for us to walk free from the consequences of sin as we submit to Christ. And this rounds out our application for today. Many points as we concluded our study in 2 Samuel. This is it. We're done in 2 Samuel. Next week we'll have both morning and evening in Luke and then we'll be uh, switching Luke to our evening and we'll have some topical sermons in the morning. But as we look at these points, uh, somewhat disparate points, I trust that the Holy Spirit was teaching, was working in your heart. It's my prayer that through these many months we've become wiser and more obedient more desirous to love God, more understanding of choices and consequences. But let's take these last few lessons to heart. That we'd understand that if we reject God's word, he will bring spiritual blindness. That if we disobey God's word, he will lift spiritual protections. That we dare not have a plan B with God. That if we're going to worship, it needs to cost something. And that though this cycle of sin continues, remember that this cycle of sin is intended as through confession and restoration of fellowship to bring us nearer to the Lord and to perfect us in Him. Let's close in prayer.